Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Nicola Sturgeon was, was lucky that the, the rail strike had been pulled off just in time. And it, but yeah. with regard to the cleansing workers, I mean, it's evident that it is causing a problem, that there is rubbish bulging out of the bins, and it just is not a good look. We fundamentally need China and the US to lead. You know, between them, you know, if they're not doing something, the world's not going to do it. And it's as simple as that. Help us have more powers, better powers, so that we can do what we want to help move forward the climate emergency agenda. Hello, I'm Brian Taylor. A huge welcome to my latest Herald podcast. Now, this is going to be a COP26 special. We'll give a big amount of coverage to that before we get to all of that quite remarkable developments as we go on air just in the last few minutes in that row over the behaviour of the former Conservative Cabinet Minister Owen Paterson. In the last few minutes, he has announced that he is quitting. He's standing down as an MP. Let's go straight to that topic. I'm joined by David Ball from the Herald. David, a startling U-turn by the UK government preceded this announcement by Mr Paterson, didn't it? That's right. As you mentioned, he has just announced in the last few minutes that he has resigned as an MP after a massive U-turn by the UK government this morning. Um, he was found to have broken sort of lobbying rules and he was facing suspension um, until sort of Tory MPs blocked it by calling for sort of an overhaul to the standards watchdog, um, which caused a huge backlash. Um, he initially had um, the backing of Number 10, but Downing Street is kind of in PMQJ. There's a lot of anger around in the papers as well today. Um, and Mr Patterson's now said he wants a life outside of the cruel world of politics. Quite, quite remarkable developments. Joined by uh, David, thanks. Stay, stay with us. Joined by three prominent MSBs: Emma Harper for the SNP, Rachel Hamilton for the Conservatives and Labour's Daniel Johnson. Emma Harper, first of all, what do you make of this announcement of the the resignation of Owen Paterson? Well, it uh, was quite interesting to hear that just ahead of coming on to to do the podcast today. I think it's really interesting that I mean it doesn't change the fact that the Tories are trying to rewrite the rule book and uh, you know continue to think it's okay that uh, we can have corruption and cronyism and and the Tories just run roughshod over over uh, you know parliamentary uh, proper scrutiny he he says he's innocent he says he's innocent and he's quitting to clear his name well you know he wasn't found innocent so and there's been some obviously backlash about it so my concern is that you know we need to make sure that our politicians are able to be scrutinised and that everything is transparent. So, um, so that would be my concern: is that uh, you know he's, you know he's, yeah, he might say he's resigned because he wants to have life outside of politics, but uh, it doesn't rewrite the, the the fact that the Tories have tried to change the rulebook. Rachel Hamilton, what do you, what do you make of this this announcement by uh, Owen Paterson? Well, I think uh, as you say. Uh, he, Brian, he wants to be able to give him a chance to uh, appeal uh, in a process that he believes uh, that has flaws uh, within that process, but also he wants to clear his name. And I think this is the only way that he is able to, to do that out with of the parliamentary process. I mean, I, I don't support changing uh, the rules, and, and I believe that an independent process should uh, be allowed to uh, run its course. It seemed as though that there was a comparison to how um, politicians were treated compared to other disciplinary processes that go on in other sectors, perhaps in, 
in industry or um, in the private sector, public mm -hmm. sector. So I think um, what was interesting this morning was um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, sort of fair assessment to where we were and that at the point in time, any amendments would be uh, looked at upon separately to the case of Owen Patterson and that changes to the system would only be sought uh, with a cross-party basis. So I think it was interesting the way that the government did U-turn, they did um, make steps to move towards a, a sort of more conciliatory process. But in the meantime, Owen Patterson has, has, has decided to resign to perhaps clear his own name. Well, you, you mentioned there, Rachel, that you know, this was a screeching U-turn by the leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg. What do you make of the handling of this issue, this whole episode, by uh, your own dear party? Well, I mean, I think it's important to recognise that we uh, should be looking at a sort of the independent process. Uh, however, uh, I am pretty horrified at the way that um, uh, suddenly after Sir David Amos's death, you know, suddenly uh, a lot of people came under vitriol because of this whole process. So I, I do think lessons have to be learned because we don't want MPs once again uh, facing, um, you know, offices being vandalised and, and uh, do need to have a process. Well, yes, this morning, Brian, um, yeah, I was yeah. following it on the television and yeah. I think it was Peter Bone and uh, Andrew Jones, I think, was yeah. was the victim of um, some quite, you know, uh, serious sort of um, vitriol. So well, I think we just need to be very careful because we're, we're in this um, situation where people react very strongly to situations. And so, yeah, I think it could have been handled uh, a lot better. With, yeah. You know, the, the, the way that things happened in the last parliamentary session here, uh, I could argue that uh, they weren't handled in terms of various people misleading Parliament. But, okay. um, but, but this is this is a very important... Now you're conflating all the issues. Yeah. I... This is a bit a bit interesting that you're even linking Owen Patterson with uh, Sir David. I don't know how, you know, corruption can be linked with, with other things. I think what we need is politicians to be basically able to be scrutinised. We want yeah. folk to be honest and truthful and transparent. I don't think we conflating the issues. Uh, Daniel Johnson, you've been patient. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually, I mean, I think Emma's right. And actually, I'd go a little bit further. I, I, I just think there is a link to, to what ha happens to David Emerson. Look, we, I think we have to do better in, in politics than this. And, and, you know, and, and I, you know, in some ways, I, I have a lot of respect to Rachel for trying to sort of present uh, you know, what is a, you know, really, I think, botched uh, set of decisions from uh, the, 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 the government uh, in a reasonable way. Because to be fair, be fair D D Daniel, to be fair, Rachel was quite clear she felt it had been mishandled. No, I, I know. But, 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 yeah, I, but yeah, I mean, because yeah, yeah. I think it's an absolute mess. Because ultimately what has happened here is someone has used their position as an MP to get access that benefits companies that they were a paid consultant for. Now, that's as, just about as bad as it gets. And I remember very well all the issues in the 90s, the brown envelopes, you know, the, you know everything that happened uh, around, you know, the FIED payments to, to uh, Neil Hamilton and so on. And we said, this cannot happen. You know, it must not happen again. And we set up, and it is an independent process. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I think there is an argument to be made for the need for and appeals and, and how those things are handled, but it is independent. And critically, unless 
you know, I've got the facts very badly wrong. You know, the, the, those exact situations of someone being paid and using the access they have as an MP, uh, you know, for those companies is exactly what has happened here. And, and that's... Thanks, Daniel. Rich, I'm, re- I'm really keen to get on to COP26, but, uh, but you know, you, you, your body's been mentioned a lot there. You've been mentioned. A quick final word from you on this topic. Well, I think it's important that uh, within a situation where there's a lack of an appeal process, that uh, we need to recognise that there is a, a flaw in that system and that people do need to be able to present their case if they feel they are innocent. Now, we're not arguing about anything other than the fact that. Um, Perhaps there were mistakes made yesterday, but I do believe that Owen Patterson has the right to defend himself. He believes that he has um, he, he, he has the means to do so. And indeed, he wasn't able to call evidence in this situation. Which but let me be clear, I do agree totally in the independent process. Thanks, thanks for that. And th- thanks for the comments on, on, on that point. Just to remind people that, who maybe just tuning into this podcast, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister Owen Patterson is resigning as an MP. He's quitting. He's stepping down. He says he's intent on clearing his name following accusations. It follows a U-turn by the, the leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who announced that, that there would be, a, that there would be a, a review of the, the, the procedures at the House, but it would not be retrospective to cover the case of Mr. Patterson. Let's move to COP26. Uh, quite incredible series of developments there, a series of announcements, a series of pronouncements. We're going to ask in this podcast whether action will match the promises made. We'll look at Scotland's record. We'll look at the impact of COP26 itself upon Glasgow with our, our, our three colleagues here. Hoping to get David Ball from, from the Herald back from the, 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 um, the, the COP26 venue there. I'm sure we'll catch up with him as, as soon as possible. Um, just just mention in, in passing, you can get full access to the Herald's COP26 summit coverage for free or free with a trial offer. Details at heraldscotland.com forward slash subscribe. And of course, as ever, 20% off, basically an offer from this program, uh, 20% off the annual subscription losing, using the exclusive code HeraldPod2021. Even I can work that one out. HeraldPod2021. Big announcement today. Loads of big announcements. Let's go with that. The big announcement being the end of coal in sight. 190 countries signing up, but not Australia, not the US. Not India, not China. Uh, let, let, let's talk to our our panel on on that. Emma, Emma what what do you make of this? It's it's a big announcement, but the really big coal users are are not there. Is this something of a of a trend at at, at COP twenty six? Do you feel is there some anxiety about that? I think uh, we should obviously be concerned about that. And uh, one of the things that I you know we're not, COP's not done yet. It's not over. So right, obviously I mean, no. there'll there'll be continued like um, engagement and negotiations taking place. But I would really be keen to continue to lobby the these other countries that are not signing up the way the, the ones that I had listed are, uh, the smaller countries. I would yeah. really encourage them to, you know, get on board and uh, make some commitments to reduce their, their coal output and, you know, get, I guess, further with a, a whole renewable energy transition. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute. The first minister today announcing attempts to make Scotland, the, the uh, you know, a renewable powerhouse. I think she said, Rachel, what what about this business of will will the action match the promises on you know the end of coal in sight, the uh, the the other issues like methane and and deforestation? What do, what do you think? Is, is the action going to match the the rhetoric? Well, I mean, first of all, I think 
COP26. I've been there um, for the last uh, two days, in and out from here, from Parliament, across uh, to COP26, um, uh, joining various fringe events. And uh, I mean, first of all, it has been an, an amazing opportunity for people to gather together to, to discuss one common theme, which is, um, you know, meeting climate change goals. And I think uh, all the global leaders and the global players uh, really sought uh, to make progress in the first couple of days. I mean, I was really excited um, about the commitment to deforestation. And I think that mm. was significant uh, um, commitment, for example, by Brazil. Um, and we know that the um, Amazon rainforests, um, which ha have, have been causing so much um, you know, of a problem in terms of the, uh, the emissions. But it, it, it is important to recognise that um, everybody has to be a player here. And I think there was 189 uh, global signatories uh, to, you know, and, and players within this who signed sign the Paris Climate Agreement. But uh, uh, China have to play their part. I mean, they have grown from a very poor country to a very successful, economically significant world player. However, their carbon emissions are contributing to around about 28% of those global emissions. And I think it's important you know, to recognise that they haven't actually um, really you know, they've not, they've not, um, they've not been here. They've not been at COP26, and so not only the people who are relying on uh, fossil fuels, such as uh, Poland or um, Germany or uh, other countries that are not so yeah. significant yeah. in our minds, such as Vietnam. You know, yeah. they are all signing up to to commit to um, to quit coal. So major coal-using countries are committing to that, and China, with all their expertise. Uh, in technology and innovation, they should be at the forefront of this. And I am slightly disappointed to find, you know, that they're not. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, David's joined us, but I'll, I'll bring in Daniel. David, I'll bring you in a couple of seconds, if you don't mind. Daniel Johnson. Daniel Johnson, on, on this point between action and, and promise. Yeah. yeah. Go on, please. And I think we've got two reasons to be worried about this. And I think Rachel's right about one of them. Because I think there's a, there's a sign here that about a lack of leadership. And we we fundamentally need China and the US to lead. You know, between them, you know, if they're not doing something, the world's not going to do it. And it's as simple as that. But the other thing and is sort of picking out India from, from that. And I was also quite concerned, in a sense, by one of the other so-called good news stories you know, of the, the creation of this hundred billion uh, fund. Because I don't yeah. think it's enough. Because ultimately, you know, as well as leadership, we also I think need to be helping uh, you know the countries in the, the global south. They're not going to necessarily be able to do it by themselves. So there needs to be this coordination uh, and indeed, I think, assistance between countries if we're going to get them over the line. So, yes, good news that we've got the, the, the call sign up, but the, 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 we need the detail. We need leadership and we also need these mechanisms so that those leaders can, can help those countries which are maybe finding things more difficult. Daniel, what did you make in that, in that subject of funding? Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, who's been looking at this as, as a an envoy for the UN, he wants to boost basically it's private capital support for clean technology to assist, well, the, the planet generally, but developing nations perhaps in particular. Do you, do you think, is that the way to go, that private capital can solve the problems that perhaps in, you know, centuries by private capitalism caused? Well, look, I mean, ultimately, yes, because if this is going to work, what we need to do is embed net zero into the fabric of our economies. And that therefore means that it has to be about investment. But I think the thing that I would also say is that, you know, we're, we're talking about, if not outright market failure, at least things that, that are kind of right at the edge of what markets can cope with. So 
it, it needs state actors to lead that investment. I think to sow the foundations or, or lay the foundations for those investment systems. And it probably also needs a, a degree of redistribution from north to south. So it, yeah. it's about all of these. I don't think it's about either private sector or the state or, or the north or the south. I think it's about all of these things working together. Okay, I'm going Can to, I actually I'm going to, jump in yeah, there? Please, please, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, please, please. Because, um, again, uh, Daniel's uh, making a good point about everyone working together. I was at uh, the Macaulay lecture uh, with uh, Christina Figueres, and she spoke um, about being collegiate and working together. And she said that you know, all these global leaders coming together under one tent just need to break down the barriers. And I think it, making the point that we can help each other is really important because if you look at the way that... Um, uh, that countries such as the uh, United States um, and uh, the, the EU, the UK, they've all pledged to help uh, South Africa decarbonize. Yes. And, and I mean, it was outstanding that we heard that India uh, would uh, commit to meeting net zero by 2070. Goodness knows how old we will be by then, uh, Brian, but maybe yeah. the aim is to get the, the planet healthier, us healthier, and we'll be living way beyond 100. But Rachel, I mean, that, you, you mentioned that 2070 pledge by India, and they've got targets for low carbon power on an interim basis by 2030, but they don't plan to be net zero until 2070. That's 20 years after the UN target date of 2050. It's 25 years after the Scottish date. It's so far ahead that you might say, is it a promise worth making at all? Well, we, we, I think we have to start somewhere. And we've sort of got, as you know, a key... Okay number of, of players who are committed to doing all sorts of things in much a quicker timetable. And I think looking in terms of that investment that you're talking about there, speeding up um, affordable, clean, green technology, and looking at all the areas such as power and transport and, and using hydrogen and, and, and looking at the emissions and the methane uh, emissions in agriculture is really, really important. And yesterday, um, a lot of the uh, NFU groups, um, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, yeah. Scotland and the rest of the UK, they, they all came together and they were talking about how they can agriculture can be part of the solution. So if we can start small, we can start to reach out and, and kind of, you know, go, go global even more, should I say. So I, I think India is a really important yeah, go on, point. Yeah, please. Because, please. Because it's a huge country. And in a sense, I think in a microcosm, it captures the challenge we had, uh, have ahead of us. Because, you know, it, that isn't quick enough, but at least it's a start. So I think what we should be using is going great. How can we get you there quicker? And the reality is if India is going to get there quicker, it's not just about sort of a bit of investment here or there. Some of it's really fundamental because so much of India is still really poor. It's not like China. So if they're going to be net zero, it's not just about, you know, uh, you know green power generation. It's actually about some of it's about the fundamentals of things like public health and sanitation and so what we should be doing is going, great, India, great, you've got the commitment. It needs to be quicker. What helps you need? And we should be looking yeah. at things like sanitation and public health so that okay. they can... Uh, David, I'm keen to bring you in, but Emma, Emma's, Emma's, Emma's desperate I, to get I, in there. I'm Emma, actually, Emma, I need, because, uh, you know, I know 2070 is a long time away, and obviously yeah. we need to work in partnership, but it, dates can be revised. And Daniel's right if we're saying, okay, you've got this goal, well, how can we enable you to maybe set target dates a bit earlier? And, you know, the Scottish government have already made commitments to uh, to to help support emerging uh, economies, yeah. including in the global south, to to do work. I think there's funding announced for Malawi that has been announced for the Scottish government. And the first minister was really keen to make sure that voices that aren't normally heard will be heard. 
she took a question in chamber today about that yeah. and I think is participating in a meeting um, next week which is it's a meeting for women so we need to make sure that we do reach out and engage and use whatever tools in our toolbox to help get um, dates revised if that's what we need to do. David, I, I see you've shifted ground there, uh, you know, as 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 did the ghost in, in Hamlet. Yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful planet you had behind you now. I'm not quite sure that's quite supportive. <laughs> David, David, they, 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 seriously, what what's the what's the mood at the conference? Are they delighted that the, 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 the announcements have gone beyond what people expected? But is the is the expectation that when it comes to delivery, well, President Xi's not there, President Putin's not there. Is it going to happen? What, what's what's the mood on 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 the ground? Our, our, our party our, our party representatives have all been all been there, and the, but you're actually at the COP at the moment. That's right. I think the globe is oversubscribed on the Wi-Fi, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I think the mood the mood is quite actually quite positive. Like obviously, okay, okay. It's, it's disappointing that um, China haven't signed up to these big coal agreements. We have to bear in mind that a lot of our manufacturing takes place in China. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of Europe is basically offset to China. So we're looking at a circular economy in Europe and particularly Scotland, and that's going to be a huge chunk of that as well. Um, and India, just the fact that they've acknowledged that net zero is a thing is a huge win, I think, for the global community. Um, scaling up the renewables by 2030 in India quite significantly is a huge step in the right direction. And I think it's fully expected that that 2070 will come down close to the 2050 as we move on. And technology so, but, helps but, them out. But, but, but crucially, people you speak to are, are, are looking at the, the scope of the announcement rather than the scope of, if you like, the derogation and the caveats. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the coal announcements today have been positive, that it's a step in the right direction. The big players are missing. That's the big yeah. problem. Yes, but um, yes, yeah. the mood music is pretty positive in general here. The first day was very glum. Um, I mean, we all saw Boris Johnson's speech, which was... Was, was that the reason for everybody being glum? No, 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 I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it has it has switched since then. And, um, well, after Boris left. Yeah, after Boris left. <laughs> yeah, up a lot. Yeah. You're not supposed to be smiling at those jokes, Rachel. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually just uh, admiring uh, Boris's use of words. He is a wordsmith, and I think he did inject uh, a little bit of personality into the whole of COP26 because it can sometimes be a little bit dry, but um, he, he, he explains uh, things in an in a, in a, in a, in a individual way, let me say. And Is he committed? Do you think he's actually, you know, sometimes you, you wonder whether, whether he's committed to it. I mean, is it a good look, for example, that he left COP26 on a private jet to fly to a dinner at the Garrick Club with his former... Mm colleagues from the telegraph is that is that is that really a good a good look well, all, global leaders, all global leaders have a very busy schedule and yeah, at yeah. some point in and in, in time they're going to have to uh use aviation and i i am uh told that uh, the the uh plane that he uses is uh, a carbon um you know a new carbon technology yeah i i'm told boris's plane is fueled purely on hot air brian which he gathered in the Glasgow district, did he? Uh, 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 Emma, let, let, let's let, let's move, move back to the, to the the delivery. We're talking there about. I'm really interested in the point that was coming out to you about you know north and south. The, the this promise of money for the poorer nations. It just it was meant to happen by 2020. It hasn't happened yet. It's it's not yet delivered. It keeps it keeps being. Repeated, you know, it's it's uh, it's 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 jammed tomorrow. Do, do you think that's quite a? Is that a problem? Is that an, an element of a problem for the the, the wider endeavour 
to keep the planet together on this. Emma. Well, I know that the Scottish Government have um, made a, uh, an announcement for money to go to Malawi, as I yeah. said. And I think, you know, obviously that Scotland doesn't have full fiscal control. We don't have control of all the levers of where we would prefer to send money to if we were going to help support it. So what I suppose, um, you know, I can't really speak for the First Minister but or for Kate Forbes, our, our Finance Secretary. Yeah. But I think what I would be, if I were them, I'd be like, you know, help us have more powers, better powers, so that we can do what we want to help move forward the climate emergency agenda. You know, there's some great ideas, there's some great progress has been made, and we, we, as in we in Scotland, want to be part of this progressive social democracy and help support other countries, especially in the global south, to, you know, to help them tackle climate emergency as well. You don't need extra powers, Emma. You could use the powers that you had to, um, to, to, to meet the climate change targets that you're failing to do. So, for example, you've missed 11 out of the 20 AQ biodiversity targets. Um, you know, you, you, you have um, not rolled out the deposit return scheme. Um, you've missed your legal emissions. We've got a pandemic going on right now as well, you know, and I'm speaking as somebody who is a nurse who's worked during the pandemic and I see the real challenges that we have. So we can't, like, not talk about COP26 and not talk about the impact of the pandemic. But, but also, projects that, Daniel Johnson, Daniel Johnson. I think it also, in a sense, this discussion also misses the point because I think the, 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 the redistribution of wealth uh, or, or the, the cooperation needs to go more than kind of bilateral uh, donations that, that, that are, are kind of based on, on kind of the individual decisions. Country. We actually, I think, need to be much more systematic. It requires global cooperation. And I think there need to be mechanisms that, 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 that deal with it because I think it's just left to individual countries to decide how big of a check they want to write and where it goes. It's not going to work. So, I mean, I don't actually think that our constitutional argument should have anything to do with this conversation because actually it's a much, much bigger argument than that, one that requires a level of, of international cooperation and indeed institutional machinery that, quite frankly, we just don't have right now. But, but Emma Harper raised the point about powers. Rachel Hamilton, th there were some accusations came Nicola Sturgeon's way that she was, you know, with newspaper adverts, etc., using the conference to, you know, declare Scotland a nation in waiting to raise the subject of independence. She's adamant that that is not the case. What's your take on that, Rachel Hamilton? Well, I'd like to know how much they paid the newspaper to put the great big advert in to advertise uh, and insinuate that, you know, uh, an independent Scotland would, would uh, you know, be, be the gateway to the climate change world. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to um, argue strongly. It's normal. Uh, it's normal. I, no, no, Emma, let, let me finish here, because we are... Uh, you know, Scotland, I'm proud of Scotland. I'm proud of what we do. I'm, I'm, I represent uh, a rural constituency and I'm proud of what the, uh, you know, our communities are doing in their own little way. But we as, um, a, a, you know, a, a collective effort here in this parliament need to be leading the way. We need to be saying that we're going to meet our uh, climate change targets. We need to be committing to putting in um, EV charging points so that people can uh, move away from uh, diesel and petrol cars. And they, they can have the practical measures to do it. At the moment, you know, we've got a £640 million uh, black hole for decarbonising uh, 
buses. Um, we've, we've got all sorts of um, targets in terms of the environment that we are not missing. And why? Why, Emma? Tell me why uh, the, the, the agri-environmental scheme uh, funding was cut over three years by nine million. I mean, how is that going to help farmers? Emma, Emma Harper. You, you know, I specifically can't answer that specific question that right. Rachel's asking, but I know that, um, you know, Scotland's emissions have been reduced by 51.5% since 1990 baseline. Scotland is doing its bit. And, you know, the agricultural stuff, the announcements by Cabinet Secretary last week at the NFU um, conferences, 51 million to help them. I work with a, a local businessman who's helping support farmers to reduce their emissions on sheep and cattle by making them more efficient so that they gain weight faster. So, you know, so there's there is work that's already been taken forward. I'm okay. not on the rural committee this session, but I think we are starting to see um, many of our farmers, whether they're NFU members or not, was Nicola Sturgeon trying to promote independence through, through those adverts, um, or, or do you think it's just part of the, the, the normal r routine of, of life in Scottish politics? It's, I didn't see the advert, so I can't comment specifically. But, you know, the bottom line is, like, if, if Scotland had all the fiscal levers and the autonomy and the ability to make our own decisions, we would be on the world stage right up with the other wee small countries as a normal independent country. That's the bottom line for me. OK, Daniel Johnson, you, you, what, what, just going to move on to the, the impact upon Scotland and Glasgow of, of the, the conference. What, what, do you, what do you see coming from it? Do, do you see it being, there's, there's a series of scenarios, isn't there? There's, there's, there's positive outcomes, there's positive outcomes on the day, but then they, they, they measle away to nothing and, and there's, there's collapse. Where, where, where do you see it going? So, look, I, I think there's a couple of things where I think people will see some big contrast between, okay. I think, some of the spin and what's actually happening. And I think the first and foremost, you know, I, th I think we're getting some of this COP stuff around the wrong way. It's not an opportunity for Scotland to browbeat them about whatever our particular perspective is. It's an opportunity for us to listen. You know, it's, the world doesn't come to Scotland very often. And actually, we don't have all the answers. And actually, I think we should be listening rather than preaching. But I think the other critical thing for people in Glasgow, I think there is a really stark contrast between all this hullabaloo and some of the realities on the ground. And I have to say, I mean, I was really struck just walking down Swahy Hall Street uh, to, to uh, uh, the, the, the events just by the number of to-let boards. I mean, there is, there, is, there, is, there is something not right, and I think we need to talk about it. And it is about jobs. It is about businesses. And I think some people in Glasgow will be asking us, asking themselves, you know, they've got all of this stuff going on over here, but what's actually happening to us in our city? And I think the street cleansing is just part of it. But I think there's, there's, there's some real turmoil going on. That's really interesting. I'm going to bring that up with David Ball. David, what, what's your, I mean, we have, we have the, the, the street cleansing strike. We have demonstrations and, you know, some complaints from some of the demonstrators that they've been, as they describe it, kettled. They've been, the police would say they're containing it in to, 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 to protect the public. What, what's your, your view of, you know, the way Glasgow has welcomed COP and the way COP has impacted upon, upon Glasgow? What, what's your take on that? Well, I think it's quite clear that COP has impacted on Glasgow quite substantially. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I saw they were being kettled yesterday. I did see some protesters, but the protests are part of a COP, and that is part of what is expected at these big events. It is annoying for anyone who 
and the thing is with the strikes, like, yes, the bins being collected, it's a, it's a horrible message to send out. Um, and a lot of people will think in Glasgow will think, well, why, why is this happening in my city? What is in this for me? Um, and if you think, is there a legacy that we're going to get out of COP for Glasgow? Regardless of what happens in the talks, what is the impact? We talk about what happened after the Commonwealth Games, whether a, there was a legacy for Glasgow. And yeah. you have to think, is that going to happen at COP26? Is there going to be something to be remembered? Nicholas Sturgeon was asked at First Minister's Questions, wasn't you, David, about, about the, I, I, I presume you, you saw it. She said, she said it was, she was disappointed that the, the, the industrial action had gone ahead after a revised offer was made with additional money coming from the, the, the Scottish government. She, but she had the, the utmost respect for the cleansing workers. And, you know, you, you had to uh, accept that in some conditions uh, where a, uh, the uh, Labour would be withdrawn. Um, what did you make of those exchanges? It was Paul Sweeney um, from, from Labour raising them with her as well. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, the unions are there to get the best deal for their workers. Yeah. And they, and they, took, they took the advantage, presumably, of COP, COP26 to do so. Exactly. And they had every right to do that. That's, that's what unions are there for. They are there to fight the, the corner of the, the workers. Um, obviously, the Scott Rail one was looking pretty... I mean, that would have had a huge yeah. impact, not just on Glasgow, but on everyone attending and would have given more yeah. attention to the disruption. But, yeah, I mean... People, I mean, last week at First Minister's Questions, uh, the First Minister wasn't happy with Anna Sawa bringing it up and basically saying he was talking down Glasgow by just pointing out these quite simple issues that shouldn't be happening. Okay, Rachel, what's your, what's your take on the, the timing of the, the cleansing workers' strike and the comments from the First Minister? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say that um, having been uh, at COP26 and having been uh, at some fringe events over the last couple of days, you know, I. What strikes me about Glasgow, it has uh, a wonderful, uh, unique atmosphere. It's vibrant. Um, yes, it is. It's, it's be- beautiful parts. And uh, last night, I felt that walking between um, Waterloo Place and Hope Street, I found that, um, you know, there was more, more rubbish on the streets and more police on the streets than there actually were human beings walking around the street. And I... I felt a bit saddened by that, and I, I think that the um, you know Nicola Sturgeon had was was lucky that the the rail strike had been uh, pulled off just in time, and that, that there'd been a, a pay deal struck. But yeah. with regard to the cleansing workers, I mean, it's evident that it is causing a problem. That there is rubbish bulging out of the bins, and it just is not a good look. Because what we want, and I think we can all agree on this, is what we want is for uh, Glasgow to have a legacy. Um, as David says, a bit like the you know the Commonwealth legacy, and I think that I, I'm wondering if there will be because there's been so many difficulties. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon was you know uh, paddling around like a duck, furiously like a duck, panicking in the water there because she knew that we were about to present ourselves on an international stage. She knew that the eyes were looking at Glasgow. Um, and for and she and they know you know that they, they, it is SNP run. So and the question is, I think uh, when all this is over after the next two weeks, is what what is left for the people? What's left for the Scottish people? What is left for the people, the residents who live there? You know, how will this be resolved? Emma, Emma, quick quick word on that. I'm keen to get back to renewable energy and COP generally, but a quick quick word on on those those comments, Emma Harper. Um, and again, I'm sure there will be a legacy that comes out of Glasgow. I mean, I totally. Uh, Again, COP isn't over yet. We're still in the middle of it, and you know, I know that uh, what the 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 statement from the government was that uh, they're in absolutely no doubt 
that our cleansing workers are absolutely crucial to you know the function of Glasgow, whether it's in pandemic or not. And obviously, uh, Rachel's highlighted the issues of a lot of police uh, available. But again, that's a security issue because of the world leaders. So it'll be interesting to see the comparison of what's happening on the ground now that some of the House leaders have gone, including Boris, who went for a dinner the other night. So He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. To be fair, he was only there for the, the, the leaders opening the two days. That was always intended, despite my satire earlier. Let, let, Emma, let, with you, let's move on. We've got only a, we've got eight or nine minutes left. Let's move, move on to the issue of Scotland's contribution to not, not so much COP, but, but the attempt to, to, to tackle climate change. It's something that's been given a great priority by the First Minister. You have Greens in government now as well. And the announcement today is Scotland promising to become a powerhouse of renewable energy. What would that, what would that mean, Emma, to your constituents, Daniel's, Rachel's constituents? What, what changes will people have to experience in their lives? Actual changes? Is it the, the cars, the boiler, what? Are we going to have to really change the way we live? Emma Harper first. Um, it, it, yeah, we've, I mean, I've done some work on the ground. You know, I am a South Scotland uh, regional MSP. It's really rural. But there's a lot of work that we've been doing looking at, um, you know, chargers uh, for e-cars. There's issues around active travel and cycling. Um, again, we've got 48% of Scotland's dairy farms in the southwest. Yeah. So obviously there's work being done. So I know that Russell Griggs in the South Scotland um, Enterprise is looking at supporting a lot of the dairy farmers to do anaerobic digestion and other enhancements to support our agricultural industry. And uh, luckily, I'm in good terms with our local farmers as well. So I'm learning from them what they think they can do. And that's something that, you know, in our part in the south, we've got wind farms. So we worry about cumulative impact. And so there's a lot of things that can be done. But we obviously need to encourage everybody to play their part. Daniel, is everybody going to have to play their part? And more importantly, are we going to really notice the difference in our life? Have we have we woken up to this yet to the extent of the change that is going to be required? We've not. And, and, and the waking up point is really important because everything Emma said is correct. But, but at the same time, we, we, we are skirting around various elephants in the room. So, you know, elephant in the room in the room number one is that you know, our baseload is, is derived from uh, two, although I think now just one nuclear power station. And we don't really have a plan for replacement and renewables by themselves aren't enough. Now, you know, we can get around that, but it requires a plan. Likewise, heating our homes the moment heat pump technology will only heat water to about 50 degrees. And frankly, your radiators are just not going to get our, your home hot enough uh, with 50 degree temperature water. Yeah. And, then, and then so we need, to, we need to acknowledge these big holes and come up with a plan to develop them. But then finally... Because you can't just expect people to say, I'm going to make my life worse, no, frankly. No, it's, no, that's, that's, well, no that's, that's exactly. Nice to, in fact, it probably has to get a bit better. Yeah. You know, that actually the switch needs to be more convenient and cheaper for people to really do it. And then the final point is this, you know, if we're really going to make this change, become net zero, we have to have a good chunk of the supply chain here. It's not good enough to have our wind turbines made halfway across the world rather than in yards in Fife. You know, so with these challenges coming, let's have heat pumps built in Scotland. You know, let's have the solutions and the industry and the jobs here in Scotland and have a plan to do that rather than shipping it in, importing it, outsourcing our net zero uh, through deindustrializing and shipping the jobs in the factories to China, which is basically what's been happening to date. 
Rachel, Rachel Hamilton, are, are we are we ready for the change? Are we aware of the change? Are we aware of the scope that will be required? Well, uh, Brian, I think young people are very aware of the change because you know it's a topic yeah, of conversation that they're growing up with, and it, it you know it's been taught in in schools, and lots of schools in the borders are are trying to do their best um, and not use single plastics and things like that. And I think that's an important start. Uh, that, that, that the next generation are going to kind of guide us the way through this. We know that in uh, my constituency in Ettrick, Rocks and Berwickshire, we're very reliant on fossil fuels. We're very, very reliant on our cars to get from A to B because we don't have a transport system that connects public transport mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of the buses and we have a single track line going to Edinburgh. That's fine, but, you know, it's not great because people from Berwickshire can't get across to the train station. However, um, I think the... Emma makes a good point there about agriculture as well, because I said earlier, agriculture can be part of the solution to this. Now, we know that uh, there's quite a lot of livestock farmers as well. Um, what, what I would like to see, uh, again, referring to Daniel's point, is that the shorter supply chains. Mm-hmm. So uh, we then um, use the example that we've had during the pandemic, where we've looked at um, those really integral, resilient food supply chains We've looked at um, buying seasonally. We've looked at buying locally. And, and we've actually narrowed that down so that we can actually support people who are producing food on our doorsteps so that we can actually then produce, um, you know, car, a low carbon footprint uh, across the borders because we're supporting each other within a community, uh, in a community way. And I, I think that all the big, the big global kind of commitments Sort of get lost when you get down to the to the community where we have to think very in very small ways. That's really that that's really interesting. That's literally the impact on the ground. Now, I'll bring in the others in a second, but but David, we've got you know COP is 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 a, is a fortnight uh, in in duration. We've had the the big leader pronouncements. We've had you know the detailed negotiations getting underway. We've had some big announcements. What can we expect in the, the next what week or so and and, and more to come? Well, every day's got a theme here. So um, there's a few big ones next week, including transport. So we'll see what will happen. But it's all about global efforts. It's this sort of combined working we're seeing on all these announcements. It's trying to get as many countries on board, essentially. Um, And by the end of it, the focus will shift to basically trying to make sure that all countries have plans to implement their promises that they made at the Paris COP, which is... That's that's really interesting. So so they're being held... Not just the promises made here, but, you know, for goodness sake, guys, any, any chance you can tell us how you're going to deliver on Paris? Yeah, so the, the, the big focus here is to make sure that that doesn't go by the wayside. It, countries have signed up to this two degrees um, limit and working towards that 1.5, but the plans they've got at the moment are, well, ma- massively inadequate. So that is the focus, is to get those agreements from individual countries that they can reduce their carbon significantly by 2030. A lot of countries don't even have a plan to reduce it at all by 2030. And then hopefully get a deal that will actually keep that 1.5 sort of dream alive and definitely the two degrees that countries have already signed up to. Keep 1.5 alive. Final word from from each of our contributors, please. Daniel Johnson, is it going to be a good? Is it going to be vapid and and insignificant? Is, Is it going to be a uh, a, a calamity. What, what's your take on how this this COP twenty six in Glasgow will go? Will 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 be seen? First rule of politics, Brian: don't make predictions. So I'm not going to make. One. But I think ultimately it boils down to what David just said. I think you know last time around, what we've built over the last five years is that broad commitment. Actually, what we now need to do is break it down. 
so we have small goals so it's achievable. And I think that's what we have to see here so that it's not just one big goal of net zero, but actually the stepping stones to, to achieve it. The first rule of politics is actually tell me first. It used to be oh, sorry, the, Brian. used to be at the BBC, now it's at the hill. But, but yeah, it's still, still, still Noted. tell me. Tell rule me. number two is, is don't Rachel, make Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Hamilton, seriously, your, your, your take on this. Optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in the middle. What, what, what's your take? So at the moment, I'm really optimistic. And I think uh, I agree with David totally that we need to keep that 1.5 degrees um, within our reach. And it's important that as we move along uh, the, the two weeks of this uh, COP process, uh, that the technical detail is drawn out because the Paris Climate Agreement has not yet been finalised. And so that need, yeah, needs yeah. to stay ahead of that. If you speak to the real experts in the room, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be... Uh, live or die it's going to be that situation David Attenborough keeps talking about you know how important it is to keep that 1.5 degrees alive and so I think if if we're looking at the overriding message the overreaching overarching kind of objective the collegiate approach all being in the same tent breaking down the barriers I think um, if if that's what we can achieve from this um, you know I, I think we can we can keep talking about the future and we can have a, a positive future for young people. Thanks, Rachel. Emma, your, your take on this, your, your um, maybe not prediction, but your take. Yeah, um, I'm optimistic. And uh, you, I did, I hosted a, an event at the Festival of Politics last week. And Rachel's right about like short supply chains, local supply chains. All of the experts on that panel, which was, uh, it was about, um, will vegans really save the planet? But all the, um, experts basically said we need to have good welfare for our animals and it needs to be local supply chains no matter what our supply chains are so I'm optimistic but we also need to help support partnership working and engagement and we need to show people like what what CO2 or methane savings they're achieving and by doing x y and z so I think if we can show people the evidence of what all these wee baby steps can do. What it does, yeah, what you get, what you get for your contribution. Emma, thanks. Daniel Johnson, many thanks. Rachel Hamilton, thanks. And David Ball, thank you very much indeed. And thanks to you. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, watching, listening, whatever one does with a podcast. From me, Brian Taylor. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add Herald Pod 2021 to your basket and get instant unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 